Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art and craft of motion imaging. For more information about the project and filmmakers discussed in this episode, as well as production images, visit the podcast section of our website at ASCMag.com. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel, ASC, about his work on Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. A lot of films have been made about the Vietnam War, where 2.2 million American men were drafted to intervene in the conflict between North and South Vietnam and black soldiers represented more than a quarter of draftees. But until now, none from the perspective of black American soldiers. The film opens with a montage of archival footage spanning the decade from 1965 to 1975 during the United States' presence in Southeast Asia, setting the story for the war abroad and at home, where black Americans fought and died fighting for racial and economic justice. The story then jumps forward half a century, where a quartet of veterans calling themselves the Bloods returns to Vietnam to dig up a cache of lost gold bars and the remains of their fallen squad leader. For the Bloods, like so many veterans, like so many Black Americans, the conflict never really ended. Repressed feelings of loss and trauma well up as the past is exhumed. They're as desperate for closure as they are for treasure, perhaps more so. And it's difficult to tell which is the heavier burden or what will come at the greater cost. Siegel began his professional film career in the 80s with documentaries in Central American combat zones like El Salvador and Nicaragua, which led to his first narrative feature opportunity, shooting 1985's Latino for Haskell Wexler ASC. As a cinematographer, his filmography also includes Three Kings, Drive, and Extraction. He and Lee had previously worked together on a number of commercials, but The Five Bloods is their first feature collaboration. Mr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your work. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's my understanding that you started out as a painter. Was that your first love in the arts? And where did it come from? I had a brother, an older brother, who was a still photographer and had a little dark room in the basement where he developed his pictures. And I was fascinated by seeing the images, you know, appear in the bath. And it... um, Got me intrigued, but I also, like a lot of younger brothers, had a bit of a love-hate relationship with my older brother, so I had to do something a little different. So I wanted those images and those pictures to move, and I got a Super 8 camera that I bought with uh, money I saved from working at a record store, and I started making little Super 8 movies with uh, my friends. Uh, kind of odd, experimental, weird movies out of the mind of a high schooler uh, uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, that's what sort of led me down the road. And where did that road lead you to? You know, when I got out of high school, uh, the first thing I did was get a job at a place called Media Study which was a local community uh, film and video center that 
taught classes to people in the community, and they brought in visiting artists. And these were very much the sort of, at the time, was being called avant-garde cinema or personal cinema or experimental cinema, many, many names. But it was really an outgrowth of both the counterculture and the advent of affordable, portable, 16-millimeter and Super 8 equipment. So I had a job there, got $50 a week. I built a little production booth for the storefront theater that we had where we would show these people's films. And I locked myself into the equipment room for a couple of days and read all the manuals so that I could manage the equipment that was being loaned out to local people in the community. And really, at that point, I had never used anything but my Super 8 camera, so it was all news to me. When you say it was a local program, where do you mean? This was in Buffalo, New York. My last couple of years of high school were in Buffalo, New York. And there was a, a gentleman at the University of Buffalo who was an, actually an English professor named uh, Gerald O'Grady. And Jerry O'Grady was a big supporter and proponent of this movement of experimental cinema. At the time, you have to remember that while there was NYU and you know UCLA, USC, film programs were very few and far between. And the ones that did exist, uh, with a few exceptions, were very new and still programs in development. So Dr. O'Grady was looking for a way to start some kind of film program in conjunction with the university. And he was able to get some resources to uh, open this, it was really a storefront called Media Study uh, near the university in Buffalo. This was like your introduction to a more uh, sophisticated form of filmmaking. Yeah, to, to technology too, you know, it was where at that point in my life I had um, touched nothing but my Super 8 camera. And all of a sudden I was learning about 16 millimeter and I was learning about uh, video porta packs, they were called. That was how, yeah, you know, you recorded video in those days was on a tape recorder with half inch tape. And this experience and this exposure to all these different artists who were, you know, making uh, films kind of uh, opened a door to me. I was painting at the same time. I always liked to draw and paint as a kid. So all of those things kind of came together and I eventually was uh, accepted into the Whitney Museum Fellowship Program. My, my brother had gone there before. So once again, following the footsteps of my brother, who I ended up going, and it was a very exciting time in New York City and at the Whitney, there was artists like Julian Schnabel and that had, had gone through the program and who eventually became a filmmaker, as we know. Even more coincidentally, and and, and I find amusing, many years later, when I came in to do additional photography on Hurt Locker, I met with Catherine Bigelow, and Catherine Bigelow said to me, I, I, I know you were at the Whitney Museum, uh, and I said, yes, I was. And she said, well, the studios for the artists were in the basement of that old emigrant bank building. And I said, yeah, and they were when I went there. And she said, uh, where was your studio? And I said to Catherine Bigelow, well, my studio had the little window to the street where you could see people's feet walking by. And it had an actual vault with a vault door off to the side of it. 
And she looked at me and she said, that was my studio. So uh, I guess I not only followed in the footsteps of, uh, of my brother, but in the footsteps of Catherine Bigelow as well. You said it was an exciting time in New York City. When was this and what was exciting about it? Well, I lived in New York in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, it was uh, a time when the artists were moving into a very different Soho than it is today. And I made a living by uh, renovating raw industrial loft space and turning it into, you know, artists' residences and studios. And there was um, it, it, there was just a real street culture and pioneering kind of uh, artistic spirit that was everywhere in the streets. And um, you just you, you felt it, uh, uh, you know, in every aspect of New York in those days. And a lot of great artists came out of it, obviously. Is there an intersection between your painting and your filmmaking? Well, I think it has the potential to. There's, there's a, for any, um, uh, any and every cinematographer. I think there's great value in uh, learning about the history of painting and studying it, and really looking at how light and composition play into the creation of an image. Because, you know, when you look at photography and cinema, it's a different process, a different avenue that the creator goes down to capture light and to mold light and to create light and to create composition. Whereas a painter starts from a literally blank canvas. So they're not sculpting or molding the, the reality around them. They're creating that reality and they're making that decision about the source of light, the quality of the light. So I think, you know, all the arts can inform you as a cinematographer or a filmmaker and uh, you know, painting, no less. And one thing that's really interesting about painting that um, uh, is hard to translate into cinematography is texture. Because as much as painting is generally a two-dimensional medium, it, paint itself has a texture to it. And as modern art developed, it even began a, a, a truly three-dimensional texture. So I think that feeling of texture is something that photographers and cinematographers have grappled with creating. I was always jealous of still photographers because of the way that they can bring beautiful atmosphere and texture into an image, and it becomes really uh, organically interwoven with the image in a way that is more difficult for cinematography, especially when you're shooting film, because when you're shooting film, it's all moving. So texture moving it's a very different thing than the static texture of a, of a still photograph. All of a sudden, it starts to be like grain or noise if it was video, which sometimes can be very beautiful or it can be very distracting or unpleasant. So I think both painting and still photography are really interesting examples of the use of texture and present a huge challenge for how you translate it into uh, cinematography. What can you tell us about your formal film education? So I basically, I, I had a year at media study. I had a year at the Whitney and I had a year at Hampshire College. My parents were both academics. And initially, when they realized I wasn't going to college, they were, they were pretty upset. And uh, so I eventually uh, agreed to, to go to Hampshire. 
I was intrigued by Hampshire, sadly, because I think uh, the academic requirements at that time were not that rigorous. And the film equipment that they had was terrific. So I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I go to this beautiful place and use this uh, film equipment. And at the time, they had an interesting thing going, which was they had started something called Hampshire Films. Jerry Liebling and Elaine May were the teachers at the time. And they were both lovers of documentary. And Hampshire Films was a way for them to create a documentary film production company almost using student labor, which of course was free and the equipment of the school, which was all available for free and the infrastructure of the school. So they could actually, for very small budgets, they could do things for nonprofits like the the Red Cross or the local historical village and stuff like that. And at the time, I was more interested in sort of this more, you know, avant-garde approach to cinema. So at the time, I I, um, thought of it as sort of, you know, commercial and conservative and they're just undercutting local production companies. So I was a bit of an outlier there. But in retrospect, I I, I do think it, it allowed students to work in a professional manner and also you know, gave them access to things which at the time were very expensive, like 16 millimeter film and equipment and stuff like that. And some great filmmakers came out of it. Ken Burns was one of the predecessors of mine who was at um, Hampshire Films and was very, very involved with their, their productions. I did end up making one documentary there, which came to Hampshire Films and was so underfunded. Uh, underfunded and so uh, under budgeted that I got the assignment and uh, it led to a bit of controversy. It was a kind of, ex- you know, it turned out to be an experimental film, but it did catch the eye of David Byrne uh, of the Talking Heads, who I had done uh, some music videos with and he saw the the documentary and it led to um, his development of a movie called True Stories. So uh, it wasn't all for naught. It it was uh, an interesting time. I also met someone who became a documentary partner of mine. Uh, She was a a filmmaker who was at the University of Massachusetts and matriculating at Hampshire College uh, named Pamela Yates. And Pamela Yates, myself, and Peter Canoy went on to form Skylight Pictures in New York City, and we worked on documentaries there for a number of years. We did some uh, documentaries on the civil rights movement and Ku Klux Klan. Uh, we did do- documentaries on the wars in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Uh, I eventually wound up in uh, Los Angeles, but Pam Yates and Peter Canoy have continued Skylight Pictures to this day and joined forces with Paco de Onis and continue to do really um, pretty tremendous documentaries all these years later. You've said that shooting Latino for Haskell Wexler was like your film school. Uh, in what way? You know, Haskell saw our documentaries and they were right up his alley. And I and Pam Yates all made contact. And he had a film that he wanted to do about Nicaragua. And we wound up getting involved in that. 
And that was my first narrative film. And really, you know, he gave me the opportunity to shoot it, which I was completely unqualified for. I knew I had done a couple little short films in New York, you know, little, I'd done some dramatic recreations for some of uh, our documentaries. But I really was very naive when it came to, you know, theatrical feature film production. But I was very knowledgeable in Central America, where in Nicaragua, where Haskell was telling his story. So I wound up going down to Nicaragua ahead of time before him and helping to prep the movie, get it going and shooting it and getting involved uh, afterwards. So it was really, you know, my sort of trial by fire and in many ways became my film school. You know, Haskell was a tremendous inspiration for me, you know, not only his brilliant cinematography, but really his involvement in in social changes and involvement in documentary filmmaking and activism and the way he was able to combine it with doing these big Hollywood movies, I thought was pretty remarkable. You and Spike Lee are around the same age. And so I'm wondering, were you in New York around the same time uh, he would have been studying film at, at NYU? Did, did the two of you ever cross paths? We kind of came up at the same time for sure. I grew up in Detroit and Spike grew up in Brooklyn, but I think everything that we've just spoken about was sort of what I was going through while he was at NYU. And I was a documentary filmmaker and he was an aspiring feature filmmaker and doing, you know, Joe's uh, Bedside Barbershop and uh, She's Gotta Have It and films like that. So we were not exactly in the same world, but certainly our paths had crossed and eventually they crossed again when I had the opportunity to do some commercials with him and have maintained that that relationship for many, many years. We have a lot of common friends. You know, Ellen Curtis, a great cinematographer who shot for him a number of times, started out as a assistant editor actually in Skylight Pictures when we were in New York and she started cutting her Laotian documentary there. So that was New York in in those days was like that. You know, there's a lot of intersecting circles of artists and filmmakers and activists. It was a very, very vibrant period. When did you start your collaboration with Spike? But on which? Uh, You mean on commercials? Yes, commercials. I came to commercials slightly later in my work. Like I was already doing features long before I started shooting commercials. Uh, at the days when I began doing features, uh, most feature guys didn't do commercials. It was very much two different worlds. You know, that's clearly changed. But back in the day, if you didn't have a commercial reel, you, you were out of the picture. So I didn't really start doing commercials until the mid-late 90s. But fairly soon thereafter, I started doing commercials with Spike. But being in Los Angeles and he being in New York at that point, I had moved to Los Angeles by the 90s. So I tended initially I did the ones that he did when he would come to L.A. And then a few times I got to do some back in New York, which was a lot of fun. And Italy. He took me on one of my great commercial experiences in Italy. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? In Italy, it was for an Italian telecom company. And it was a fascinating commercial, actually, because we got to recreate Mahatma Gandhi, and uh, I got to go to Moscow and as well and film in Red Square. 
it was it was meant to you know have this sort of global perspective. It was a pretty epic commercial. Having come from different life experiences, what are yours and Spike's common points of creative interest? Well, I think we both came out of the independent film world. We both came from a place of social activism. We both grew up in urban areas at the same time during the height of the struggle against the war in Vietnam and the civil rights movement. You know, I grew up in a black neighborhood in Detroit that was in every bit as much upheaval as we find uh, our world in today. Um, The civil uprising that Catherine Bigelow portrayed in her movie, ironically, was my neighborhood. That's where I grew up, you know. So I think we had a lot of those kind of common threads through our early days. He had parents that was a musician and academic, and you know, my parents were academics. So I think there's a lot of common ground. But I, you know, I wouldn't say that my experience growing up was like Spike's, you know. No, of course, of course. Um, but creatively speaking. You know, look, he's made some amazing movies and he's done it consistently, like year after year, you know, at times against huge obstacles. And he's never compromised on what it is he's trying to say. And he's always had something to say. You know, I'm attracted to filmmakers that have a strong point of view, that are talking about humanity in some shape or form are looking at the ironies, the absurdities, the the beauties and the complexities of human existence. I seek out and I am inspired by those kind of filmmakers. Otherwise, our movie is just a way to kill two hours, right? What does Spike look for in a cinematographer? I think he looks for somebody that can shoot really fast. (laughs) No, I mean, I think... Uh, actually, that's I'm not kidding. There, you know, Spike works very, very quickly, and he has, uh, you know, he lets you do your job, but he has very little patience for you know things that take too long. So you got to be on your A game with him, and you got to be ready, and you got to uh, have your ducks in a row, so to speak. But I think he also looks for a cinematographer that is brave, is bold. You know, I think he wants to embrace challenging uh, and new formats you know he he never wants to just be pigeonholed into like one look or one style or one method of shooting having said that he does have his signatures you know certain tools that he keeps coming back to so as much as i think spike is always kind of interested in what's new and you know what, what kind of challenging techniques people can come up with. He's also has a very defined style of his own and you can kind of tell a Spike Lee movie, you know, it doesn't look like any other movie. He must have been familiar with your work on films like El Salvador, Another Vietnam, Latino, Platoon, where you shot second unit for Bob Richardson, ASC, and Three Kings. Did he talk to you about any of these? No. We, we, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure he knows, if not all, he knows, you know, some of my work, for sure. But we didn't really reference other films that I'd done. And I always find that a little a little delicate as well, because, you know, the last thing you want to say to a director is, hey, why don't we shoot this scene like I did in this other movie? I guess I meant in terms of your experience with similar material. Yeah, probably the documentary more than anything. In particular, you know, when we were 
discussing the flashback for um, Storm and Norman. I, I, I kind of proposed doing it the same way I would have if, you know, back in my documentary days, if I was in Vietnam filming these guys for real, I, it would have been 16 millimeter. Uh, the camera would have been on the shoulder. If it was for TV news, I very possibly would have been shooting reversal film. And that's what I did uh, for that flashback. And, and, you know, Spike embraced it wholeheartedly. Now, production, of course, was like, oh, my God, what are these guys going to do? This is ridiculous. You know, we're in Thailand, Vietnam. There's no labs. We've only got Chadwick Boseman for two weeks. You know, nobody's going to be able to see the film. The video taps are going to be crap. And Spike was like, 16, I want to do it for real. So I was like, God bless him, you know. <laughs> and we did. And, and you know, could we have created that look in post? To a degree, I don't think it ever would have been exactly the same. You know, there was a couple shots that I had to, for VFX reasons, were digital that I had to blend in there. And I can tell you, it was, it's very hard to reproduce that look in, in post. You mentioned the challenge of bringing atmosphere into an image. Uh, did, did shooting 16 millimeter accomplish that for you in this case? Absolutely the grain and the grit of the, of that image that's a, a very hard thing to to reproduce you can do it i mean you can reproduce a version of it but it, it's not quite the same uh, if, that reminds me of something that ed lockman uh asc likes to talk about um the foveal qualities of 16 millimeter how Film stock with its separate physical dye layers creates a, a lifelike and dimensional image that uh, can't be reproduced with a digital sensor. I, I do have to, I, I mean, I, I think it's right. And uh, I can, I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that's really interesting, I remember, you know, I did the first movie with the Genesis camera um, on Superman. And I remember looking at the material and, and stuff looked great, but the, the, the one uh, you know, trying to sort of suss out what the difference was. And, and then I, I you know, I looked into the, and there was a, the, as always the whole question of shadow detail. We we're always talking about shadow detail, you know? And I remember during the DI really studying it and uh, talking to the colorist. And we were talking about the, the fact that if I had shot it on film, I don't, think it would have had more shadow detail but what it would have had is it would have had color in the shadows but it would have had grain and the grain in the shadows is really just little dots of color floating around but it does create a certain degree of three-dimensionality of color depth and so maybe you equate that with detail so it is a different look there's no question. And I think that, you know, you know, whether by now with the Alexa and all of the technology that we have, if you can get some of that look, I think, I think, you know, you can probably come pretty close and they have things like live brain now and stuff, but to a certain degree, it's like, if that's the look you want, why not just, just shoot it in 16. And I read that you were able to actually shoot these sequences on reversal stock, uh, Kodak Ektachrome 100D 7285. Yes, I was able to shoot the flashbacks in reversal, but the challenge was first that Kodak had stopped making reversal. And there'd been uh, quite a bit of pressure from people like myself and others that they really needed to keep making it because there was always a 
place for it. But it took a lot of coaxing and pushing to get a batch of 16 millimeter film. We had to basically buy the whole batch ahead of time. It did remind me of Three Kings. <laughs> then the next problem is how you get to develop because if you're developing reversal as reversal, it's not an ECN bath, so you can't just go to Photochem or someplace like that. So um, we found a, a lab in Burbank called Spectra Film Labs, which is a um, uh, you know wonderful little boutique lab. They were willing to do it. And uh, there you are in Thailand with Chadwick Boseman for two weeks, and you're sending your film with a courier all the way across the world to a little boutique lab in Burbank that's only open from nine to five and not getting your film back till the actor is getting on the plane to leave. So it was, uh, it was a challenge. It took some, some balls, but, um, that's the thing about Spike is like, you know, he makes up his mind. He says, this is how we're going to do it. And that's how you do it. In theory, it sounds like a huge leap of faith, but how was it in practice? Like how well did you sleep at night? I never sleep well when it comes to that. Uh, I mean, even when I shoot digital and I see it on the set, I don't sleep well. But look, a 16 camera, putting the lens on, whipping out the light meter, doing the shot, that's not so worrisome. But what happens when that mag goes into the changing bag and from the changing bag to the courier, from the courier to the airplane, to the lab, to the development, to coming back, all of that is just fraught with anxiety because, and it always has been. Oh, because it's out of your hands, right? It's out of your hands. And today, you know, you're you're dealing with technology that there's only a very small number of people left that know how it works. It's kind of like you're restoring some old historical building and you're trying to get somebody to, you know, reproduce the plaster molding that in 200 years ago, Italian craftsmen fashioned by hand. And you're trying to find somebody that has some notion of how to do that. And that's where we're heading, unfortunately. Well, we understand that the process is important to the filmmaker, you know, how, how the sausage is made. Um, but how important is the process when its intended effect on the audience is potentially the same, regardless of how you shoot it? Well, I mean, the, the intended effect on the audience is hopefully always the same in the sense that I think um, whatever format you're shooting for, I, I assume if you have something to say, you're saying it no matter what format. So I guess I guess really your question is, more like, do you need to change the way you say something for the format that you're saying it in? Is that really what we're talking about? Well, I guess I'm just thinking of going through all that trouble for the viewers who will be watching this movie at home, either on their laptop or their smartphone or even their 4K flat screen TV, uh, but also will watch an old 4.3 TV show stretch out to 16.9 or a 2.4.0 scope film squeeze down to 16.9 and not really be able to tell the difference in the same way that people watching films with motion smoothing turned on don't seem to notice the difference. And they'll watch a whole movie that way and it doesn't affect their enjoyment of it. 
at the time we did the five um, bloods it was meant to have both a theatrical and a, a streaming life uh, it was supposed to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival where Spike was going to be the head of the jury now COVID-19 changed all that but Regardless, I think that you do need to sort of shoot for the highest standards you can, understanding that there's a certain trickle down with each format. And when I came up, the biggest challenge was when they wanted you to shoot your movie and somehow frame it for a four by three television at the same time, which, of course, most people like myself just ignored and and relied on pan and scan or, or telecine where you recompose things. Nowadays, you can be shooting for the biggest IMAX screen in the world and the smallest smartphone at the same time. And, you know, one of which is watched with 500 people in a dark room and the other one in the subway on the way to work, vertical. So I think all you can do is to try to go for the way you would want to see it, you know, that the way you as a filmmaker would want to see it as an audience. And I do believe that there are many things where um, producers and the like will tell you, oh, the average audience, you know, can't tell the difference or doesn't see it. But what I would submit is that if you think about fine dining and the great restaurants and chefs of the world, when you go in to a Michelin three-star restaurant and you have a meal and you close your eyes and you think you've gone to heaven, you may not know every ingredient, every spice, every herb, every vegetable that went into that recipe. And you may not even know that they heated the rice first and then they put a layer of water in and then they lay the vegetable on top. You may not even know all of those elements, but what you do know is that what you tasted was sublime. So I would say that a lot of the things that people will say will never be noticed do contribute to the end result experience of a viewer watching it. Now, of course, there can be excesses. and There is I'm sure a tipping point where you say, like, it's really not worth spending a gazillion extra dollars for something that is that subtle. And you do have to make those compromises uh, uh, all the time. But I think we should never ignore or turn our back on something because we think, oh, nobody will notice. Agreed. Um, now, moving on, I want to point out that you shot your uh, 16 millimeter footage in the 1.331 aspect ratio, which is going to be closer to the way that people would have viewed that footage from the war uh, at home on television in the 1960s and 70s. Yes. Yeah, we shot standard 16 because I saw no purpose in shooting super 60. We wanted a four by three aspect ratio. And I used the Zeiss T13 Distagon, the 16 millimeter lenses, same ones that I used to own. And I also had a Canon zoom lens, which was not quite a lens of the 70s, but it was definitely a, um, a lens of the 80s. And the camera was the Airy 416 
which is, you know, a little more modern version, but not substantially different than the 16 millimeter cameras we used at the time. I noticed that you even threw in some a super eight millimeter into the mix in the form of these travel logs shot by the character played by actor Norm Lewis. Well, um, you know, this came out of an idea of spikes that, you know, the character of Eddie was a photographer during the war. And so he thought it would be interesting if he was carrying not only his still camera, but a, a little super eight camera around on their revisit to Vietnam. And I just thought it would be a lot more organic if we just gave him the camera and had him shoot, you know, what that character would really have been shooting at that time. So we taught him how to use it. And um, I did a few shots, you know, but for the most part, he, I would say the overwhelming majority of what's in the film is indeed what he shot. And everything else was shot with a digital camera, correct? Yeah. Defy Bloods begins in Ho Chi Minh City. Well, it really begins with some archival footage and then Ho Chi Minh City. And we filmed that with the Alexa LF, the medium format Alexa. And we used the DNA lenses, but these were the DNA lenses that they've designed specifically for the LF as opposed to the ones I used for Bohemian Rhapsody with the 65. When we went into the jungle, we used the Alexa Mini. The Alexa Mini LF had not come out at that time. What can you tell us about Defy Blood's uh, visual references, including films like Apocalypse Now uh, or Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and and also the photography uh, and news coverage of that era, which helped shape people's perceptions of the war? Well, Apocalypse Now was certainly uh, an influence. It's a, it's a film, to me, one of the great Vietnam War era films, one of the great war films ever. And it has such a rich methodology for its visual storytelling that, you know, you can't watch it too many times. For us, it's clearly the trip up the river is an homage. The nightclub that is called Apocalypse Now actually is a real nightclub in Vietnam called Apocalypse Now. So it really exists. And uh, certainly it was one of the reasons we went to it as a location, but it also, it serviced the story. I also found great inspiration in looking at some of the classic documentaries like Hearts and Minds by Peter Davis's amazing Vietnam documentary, and even a more contemporary one in Ken Burns's great historical series about Vietnam. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I think, really is an influence on the film less visually and more structurally in terms of, obviously, the whole storyline of these Four Bloods recovering this gold and what that does to the dynamic between them is lifted right from Treasure of Sierra Madre. So, and Spike, you know, is constantly scouring the internet for references and images. And he would, you know, on a daily basis, send me some new archival uh, jewel that he had come across. And that clearly um, had an impact. You've spoken about this at length elsewhere, but I want to touch upon your decision to film in multiple aspect ratios, 240-185-133. Well, the 4 by 3 aspect ratio that we used for the flashback was really driven by the desire to replicate the methodology that we would have used if we were, you know, embedded with the Army in 1970. So that was a given. And it was a given that the archival footage would be almost exclusively uh, 4 by 3 we didn't want to crop it or letterbox or anything like that. We wanted it to to truly be 
uh, in the aspect ratio with, in which it was photographed. The rest of the film, the 239, which then actually expands to a 185, really came out of Spike's biggest reference in the making of the movie, even more than Treasure of Sierra Madre or Apocalypse Now, was David Lean. He felt that this was an epic story that encompassed hundreds of years of history and, and it had a global resonance because of the whole nature of the war in Vietnam. So he constantly referred to uh, David Lean and wanting that kind of scale, even though our budget was very limited and our schedule was very short. So I made the choice to shoot the 240 in Ho Chi Minh City Knowing it was going to go on Netflix, by going to 185, when you go to the jungle, it's actually an expansion. So you're actually opening up the frame because the Netflix presentation, whether it is on a laptop, a phone, an iPad, or a television, will always be within a 16 by 9 format. Netflix shows are all different aspect ratios. But that's all based on how they're cropped within that 16 by 9 display device. By going from 240 to 185, we were able to open the top and the bottom of the frame and actually make the jungle feel sort of bigger and more all-encompassing than the sort of wider screen feel of the 240. What lenses did you have in the jungle? In the jungle, we used the, the Ingenue Optimo Zooms which have a little different look than the DNA lenses that we used in the city. And it just gave it a little bit of a different kind of uh, flavor. You mentioned spike signatures, a, a specific visual vocabulary. When in the creative process do these begin to manifest? Well, you know, um, we had very little prep time. I literally finished a movie called Extraction. Uh, one day and started the five bloods the next. Um, and Spike was just coming off of Black Klansman and the whole uh, awards season and all that. So neither of us really had enough time to prep this or the amount of prep that we should have had. So, you know, I've seen all of Spike's movies. I know his style. I know I've worked with on commercials. So I had some advanced knowledge. But I still had to really learn how to execute this um, thing that makes a Spike Lee joint a Spike Lee joint. There was a couple of things that uh, took me a few days to kind of uh, suss out and, and get in line with. And, you know, one of them is that in this film, he really wanted to emphasize the idea of the Bloods as a group. He loved any shot that could show all of them in the same frame. So there are really very few close-ups, very few sort of traditional coverage. In a few of the dialogue scenes early in the setup, there's fairly more normal stuff. But more often than not, Spike's desire would be to get everybody in the frame at the same time. And so that was, you know, that took me a little, a little bit to get used to and to understand what he was going for and how to do that, how to still give him editorial choices, but not relying on the old, you know, cut from the wide to the close up kind of thing. 
that was very interesting. I thought for me, you know, and it, and it took me a it took me a little bit to 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 pick up on it. it. wasn't It wasn't even initially. He didn't even overtly say it. It was I, I kind of started to realize it as we went along. What are some of the visual elements that make Defy Bloods a Spike Lee joint? I think some of the things that when you look at the movie that you see that are very much his style of filmmaking is there's a certain type of presentational quality that he often favors in his choreography. It's a very sort of, you know, in your face um, kind of relationship between camera and actors. And it's an extreme form, which he's used throughout his career, is when he goes into the direct address where someone is looking straight at the camera. And that was obviously used to maximum effect with Delroy Lindell's rant toward the end of the film. He also, of course, there is the signature dolly shot with the actors sitting on the dolly. That comes in like right at the end of the movie. It's like one of the last shots. At the very end, yeah. Do these visual elements come about spontaneously or are they built into the script? I always try to do all the prep I possibly can so that I can be spontaneous on the set as an outgrowth of what I've planned for, not as a panicked response <laughs> to getting the work done. But I think, you know, Spike is a writer-director, right? So I think a lot of the ideas that he has up front are in the script, but it didn't spell out like, okay, and here comes my signature shot. What became the actors on the dolly shot was in the script, it just said a dolly shot. And I think sometimes he knows he's going to do these things. He just doesn't necessarily quite know when until he gets a little little deeper into the film. We already talked about the ways in which you used different aspect ratios to achieve different emotional effects. Did you take a similar approach to lighting or any other part of the film cinematography? You know, I think the lighting in the Ho Chi Minh City is sort of more straightforward and a little less uh, dramatic, shall we say. And then as it gets into the jungle and the consequences grow, the lighting becomes harder and harsher and more violent. And, you know, there's a certain color shift where the jungle brings about the kind of this intense greens um, with these sort of little accents of red that make the green sing even a little more. So I think you have those transitions, same as you do with the format. Let's move on to talking about shooting on location in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam and in Thailand. Um, Vietnam, we did, we shot the nightclub, we shot, we shot the beginning of the river trip in Vietnam, where they're leaving the city and all that. Vietnam was, is very touch and go whether we were going to be able to get in there to shoot. So initially Spike and I, I think had ambitions to shoot a lot more of the movie if we could in Vietnam. But as the time marched on, you know, at a certain point we had to, we had to keep shooting and we couldn't count on some scenes being done in Vietnam. So they ended up being done in Thailand instead. So what about the scenes that were set in unmistakably Vietnam locations uh, like Ho Chi Minh City? Let's say if that fell through, did you have plans to fake it elsewhere or maybe even steal the shots? Uh, not really. You know, I, Spike and I were really determined that we do that we shoot in Vietnam. And 
Let's put it this way. There was no plan B to give up on Vietnam. But as the days went on, production had us scouting many a location in Thailand in the event that we didn't get to go to Vietnam. Uh, I'm sure there's a part of them that would have loved it if we didn't go and just kept it all in Thailand and probably would have saved some money or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I think for Spike, it was very important not only to shoot in Vietnam, but to use Vietnamese actors and Vietnamese extras even. You know, he really wanted to feel that he had given a truthful portrayal to to the Vietnamese people and, and to the Vietnamese experience. So I think um, I, I think he would have done it all in Thailand if he had to, but I think it would have broken his heart. Were you able to bring any of your regular crew with you? Um, I worked with Chris Entrella, uh, Key Grip, and Ian Kincaid, a gaffer who I've known for many years, and Ari Robbins was the Steadicam operator, did a, a terrific job, and made Spike a fan of the Trinity uh, Steadicam, and um, Peter Byrne and Kat Spencer were on the camera team, and we had some great local crew as well. Um, Pitai, um, I won't butcher his last name, but did a lot of shooting uh, for me, a local Thai DP who's superbly talented, and his father uh, owns one of the lighting rental facilities. He was the local gaffer. So we had a great team. You said Ari made Spike a fan of the Airy Trinity. How so? Well, you know, one of the issues that I've always had with the Steadicam is the range of movement. How, whether you're in low mode or normal mode, how much range you have from low point to high point. And it's also one of the reasons, I've, oddly enough, I've, I've always enjoyed shorter Steadicam guys because you're not struggling against their height for the lower angles. The one thing that the Trinity can do that's terrific is it does extend the range. So you can go from the camera being very low on the ground up to like someone's eye level in one move without platforms or apple boxes or all that kind of stuff. And you can also move it over stuff more. So, you know, like where uh, um, you, you may have a table in front of you or something like that, the camera can come up and, and go over it. So I think Spike loved the fact that we had this extra level of flexibility with the steady cam. What's the tie? Vietnamese production infrastructure like? In Thailand, it's pretty good, really. You know, I mean, they've been making movies in Thailand for a long time. Um, and even like Bollywood movies go there to do action stuff. There's three or four rental houses, got some new stages that they built. And it's quite, quite developed. There's good crews. There is a legitimate film industry there. Uh, in Vietnam, I think it's not nearly as developed. But I think they're looking at what's going on in Thailand and thinking that they would like to develop theirs in the same way. And it is um, the Vietnamese film infrastructure is growing. There's no question. There is even some local uh, indigenous film talent there that are making movies for the local audience. And I think it's going to only expand, you know, in the years to come. What stands out for you about your experience shooting Defy Bloods in Southeast Asia? Uh, well, I think shooting in Southeast Asia, shooting in uh, Vietnam and in uh, Thailand, you know, you have certain physical things you just have to understand. You're shooting in a tropical area. You're going to be in extreme heat. 
You're going to have a lot of humidity. Unfortunately, when we were there, it was the time when the, along the Burmese Thai border, they burned crops. And there was periods when we had the worst air quality in the entire world, literally, like uh, over 470 parts per million. So there's a physical aspect to it. You know, you tend more often than not, you're going to Thailand in order to shoot jungle locations or those types of remote locations. So, you know, you need to take into account what it means to get gear in and out of places. The, you know, the infrastructure in Thailand is, is, is pretty good. And there's definitely some good crew people. But as always, you know, you have to deal with language issues. And you have to deal with expectations, you know, like if it's a local shoot, like what standard do they have to work? And the, the ties are pretty darn good. They're very sophisticated, very hardworking crew. So it's actually a relatively easy place to shoot. Vietnam probably will be one day. Right now, it's, it's a different governmental structure and a different way of approving a shoot and overseeing a shoot, in particular when it's like something about the Vietnamese War. Like if this had been a movie about King Kong or something, it probably would have been much easier. Let's pivot to post. You did the color grade at Company 3 in Los Angeles with colorist Stefan Nakamura. And the two of you have now collaborated on 13 feature films, starting with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind in 2002. How would you describe the nature of this collaboration and how it's evolved in that time? Well, it actually goes back long before Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. It goes back to a movie that I directed for HBO called Point of Origin. And uh, on that movie, um, we had a very small budget and we went to the post group for some of our visual effects. And there was this guy there named Stefan Nakamura that they offered me up as a colorist. And we got into coloring this you know, movie, that first feature I directed. And it was a, a lot of fun. We had a great time together and we did some kind of crazy things and gave the film a really good, strong look. And I just found what I thought was a very kindred spirit in terms of, uh, on the one hand, being very adventureful and, and brave in his experimentation. And, and on the other hand, having a film background and, you know, being a lover of naturalism or a believer in naturalism at the same time. So that collaboration has carried on and through his move to Technicolor and then after that, his move to Company 3. Could you elaborate a little bit more on finding the balance between experimentation and, and naturalism as, as far as your work with Stefan is concerned? Well, I think part of it is Steph's willingness when I want to do something kind of crazy and experimental to go there on the one hand, and on the other hand, always have a little bit of a check and balance about credibility so that when you're going for a naturalistic look, you really stick to the organic you know, DNA of the footage and of natural light. But when you are going for something more stylized, even when you create your language and you decide how you're defining uh, a new look or grammar is you then stay true to it. So it, it has its own credibility and he has a great eye. You know, he came out of the film world. He understands film references and he naturally will gravitate toward the same kind of things, likes and dislikes that I have. Not a hundred percent. And, you know, if it was a hundred percent, then we wouldn't need each other. But I think it, it's, there's enough of a common ground that we make a great 
collaborative team and there's enough sort of differences that we give each other a little feedback, so to speak. How would you describe the overall look of the five bloods? Yeah, I think from a color perspective, it was really, you know, I, I wanted the 16 millimeter to have that look of ectochrome that, that the film had back in the 70s. And from the modern stuff, you know, I think I just really wanted the green in the jungle to sing and and have a kind of intensity to it that could match the story's intensity. And for Ho Chi Minh City, I wanted it to have a kind of unadorned or truth quality to it that was like very straightforward, like what it looks like when you're there and not really imposing a, a color palette upon Saigon. So I would say those were the main conceits in the coloring of the film. You said that you had built the look already into your dailies. Um, did you do any onset coloring or build LUTs with Stefan beforehand? I had LUTs that we developed beforehand um, that Stefan provided. And then in Vietnam, I had a colorist who was processing the dailies and I might send him pictures during the day, but I would go in at night and look at the material with him and make any adjustments that we needed to make. I don't tend to do much color correcting on set. Uh, it doesn't feel to me like that's the best place to be doing it or the right place to be doing it. So other than maybe some global stuff, like, oh, let's bring up the black levels a little bit. I, I shy away from getting into heavy color correcting on set, knowing that you're going to do it later anyway. Who was your dailies colorist? The colorist was uh, John Mendenhall, who also works at Company 3. It was a great setup, actually. I would shoot, come back to the hotel, go into the dailies room, do some tweaks, hit the pool and go to bed. <laughs> Not bad for a day's work. <laughs> um, how involved was Spike with the color grading process? Well, I think Spike had very strong opinions about the color, but I tend to uh, do a first pass and show it to a director get notes, make tweaks. So, you know, we did it in New York because that's where he is and there was tax incentive reasons. You know, he had a very strong opinion, but I think by the time I got to the color and because he had seen the dailies now, it went pretty smooth and, and I only had to show it to him a couple of times and he just needed the gold to shine. <laughs> this being Netflix, uh, there was an HDR mandate, right? Yeah, we actually, our color correction, we, we did an HDR first and then did the conversion later. Now, did shooting on 16 millimeter conflict with that? Because I know that Netflix also has very stringent rules uh, about the kinds of cameras that you can shoot with. No, I, I, I think if anything, the HDR might have helped the 16 millimeter because it has that bigger color gamut. Right, because you're just making an HDR scan of the negative. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, once you've scanned the 16 into the digital world, for all intents and purposes, it's no longer 16, is it? It's digital. Just like anything else, you know, like, you know, the mini versus the LF. The big difference, obviously, is in your, the, the blackness of the blacks and the intensity of the uh, highlights. So, yeah, you know, maybe for the 16 millimeter, you know, in the HDR version, you don't need to go as, as heavy with the blacks because the HDR itself will give you very rich blacks. But, you know, the material is totally workable in HDR. Uh, what was your uh, original digital capture format? We shot Airy Ron, and the, L the LF is by nature uh, 4.5K, whatever it is. And the mini, I just shot in the highest, I, I think, what is it, around 3.2 or something like that. And they have a uh, mandate where 
you know, you can only do a certain percentage that's not 4K, which with all due respect, I just ignored. All right, because they're going to upscale it anyway. They do. Yeah, they, they do. And, and we all know, that, look, let, let's be honest. I think we all know that, that the whole 4K thing is a bit of a marketing thing. You know, they are thinking, everybody's thinking ahead, like with HDR, about when displays get better and better and you go back to old shows, you want them to still look good. But the fact of the matter is that uh, 2K versus 4K is a very subtle difference that is depending on the on the particular show and the way it's shot and devices that you're shooting on is can be almost imperceptible. I thought Gravity was a gorgeous looking movie that lo and behold was shot in 2K. So, On the other hand, did you feel uh, like you and, and Spike were given the freedom and support by Netflix to say what needed to be said in the way you want to say it? Yeah, I mean, I think Netflix is, is hugely supportive of filmmakers, you know, compared to other experiences I've had with uh, film studios. You know, I think they when they've made a decision to go with somebody, they, they don't second guess a lot. You know, they have concerns about money and logistics and all that kind of stuff. And they have a business plan about, you know, this market and that market. But I think they're very, when it comes to the actual sort of, you know, content and form of the storytelling, they're pretty hands off. I mean, maybe that's a function of working with somebody like Spike Lee, who, you know, it's like, you know, who's going to tell Spike Lee what to do, right? Like, who's going to tell Scorsese? So I I do think um, it may not be that way with every film and every project. But certainly my experience with Spike and Netflix was very, very favorable. Glad to hear it. All right. I have one last question for you. Do you still paint? No. And I wish I did still paint because as I storyboard nowadays, I can see how my drawing skills have deteriorated so much. And it's one of the things that I wish I had kept up with because uh, not so much to be a painter, <laughs> although it would give me something great to do the next time a pandemic hits, but just to be able to um, do my storyboards better. But then I see, I see like the work of like Benoit Delhomme and um, Alwyn Kuchler and uh, who are doing these amazing paintings. And uh, I really admire their ability to find outlets for their creativity well beyond cinematography. I mean, that's, I find it very impressive. Has anything else taken its place? Well, I listen to a lot of music, and I left painting behind a long, long time ago. Even when I was taking pictures, I would always want them to move, you know. It was the cubist in me. I'd be looking at a person's face and then kind of want to slide around to the side to see their profile. And that's a hard thing to do in one painting, unless you're a cubist. That was cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel, ASC, talking about his work on Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles on the art and craft of cinematography at ASCMag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. For your complete cinematography resource, visit ASCMag.com and subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine.